I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to a special edition of Catalyst for Change, the race for Boston. Over the next few weeks, we'll introduce you to each of the mayoral candidates and their vision for Boston. Today, we are joined by City Councilor Andrea Campbell. Councilor Campbell represents District 4 on the Boston City Council and has served on the council since being elected in 2015. From 2018 to 2020, she served as president of the city council, becoming the first African-American woman to serve in this role. Prior to serving District 4, Councillor Campbell worked as a lawyer, serving as deputy legal counsel for Governor Duval Patrick, as well as spending time in the public and private sectors. She is a lifelong resident of Boston and graduated from Boston Public Schools. Andrea Campbell currently lives in Mattapan with her family. Hi, Andrea. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you. It's great to have you here. I was just saying, right, we were in person at City Hall. It seems like long ago, but it's great to see you. I know. We had much better microphones then, too. <laughs> it was a great setup. <laughs> and I was pregnant, right? I was pregnant with a baby. I know. It's <laughs> a and sense. How old is he now? Soon to be 17 months. Yeah, it's crazy. So crazy. fast. It really does, doesn't it? I, I said that to someone else who's pregnant right now, and I just kind of sighed and said, well, the next thing you know, you're teaching him how to drive and <laughs> learning how to on-ramp a highway, which is what my mothering experience is right now. Understood. Yeah, but it's a, it's a uh, changes your life for the better, right? It just offers perspective when things get really hard. I, yeah. I look at the boys and I reset and I keep, I keep it moving. They do. They keep you so grounded. It's, it is amazing. So you're running for mayor. That's right. And you have lived here all your life. And, and you have really experienced, I think, so many sides of Boston. And, and so could you talk first a little bit about your childhood growing up in Boston, your family, and you know, just kind of how it made you the person that you are today? Yes. Yeah, so I often say that my entire life has been shaped by and connected to the city of Boston. You know, I was born and raised here. I grew up in Roxbury in the South End. And I often say, if you know Boston, you have to name every neighborhood you've ever lived in. Um, I live in Mattapan now with my husband and two boys. But Roxbury in the South End were my neighborhoods as a young girl growing up. I'm a BPS kid. I went to five Boston public schools, including Boston Latin School. I left Latin and I went to Princeton uh, University and then UCLA for law school. And then I came back home and actually started my legal career here representing parents and students in education cases at a local nonprofit in Roxbury. I've worked in state government here, including as an attorney for Governor Deval Patrick. But sadly, Boston is also where I have experienced tremendous pain and loss. Um, Nine years ago, this year actually marks nine years since my twin brother, Andre, passed away while in the custody of the Department of Correction, which, as you know, oversees our prisons here in Massachusetts. He had a disease called scleroderma and was a pretrial detainee, which meant that he was waiting for two years to actually go to trial. He never made it because... As a result of a disease he had, scleroderma, he didn't receive in it. He didn't receive adequate health care and would pass away while in that system when he was 29 years old. And both of us grew up in the city of Boston. Both of us were BPS kids. Both of us graduated from a Boston public high school. Both of us lost our mom when we were eight months old. She actually died in a car accident going to visit our father, who was incarcerated at the time. 
we both grew up poor in the city of Boston. We both lived in public housing, sometimes affordable housing. Um, we both bounced around the foster care system, sometimes uh, living with relatives because our father was incarcerated for the first eight years of our life. Our father would get out of prison when we were 19 and then he would suddenly pass away. So all, both Andre and I experienced all of this tragedy, this trauma and this loss. So I reflected on when Andre passed, how did two twins born and raised in the city of Boston have such different life outcomes? Right. And right. that is the question that informs my work. Maybe it's my life's journey to really figure out how systems work for me and allowed me to be successful and how they fail him and frankly, how they continue to fail thousands of Bostonians today. And it's the very question that gave me the courage to run for office in the first place. And it's the same question that's informing this run for mayor. It, it, it affects so many of the things that are important to a mayor's race and to the the day-to-day job of a mayor, right? And so there's so many different strands there that I want to pull on. Maybe the first is because I was recently having this conversation where I used you and your brother as an example where I felt like people were very fixated on this current debate about exam schools and admission to exam schools and, and leaving behind the whole, you know, the rest of the 125 schools that are, you know, in, in many, many cases, 75% of them are performing at the bottom of the state. I think it's a really important thing to do to look at the school district through your eyes, because just like you said, you're both born in the same household. You're exactly the same age, you're twins. And one of you makes it through the system to Princeton and to work for the governor and your twin brother ends up in prison. And that is the lives of so many of the students in the city of Boston and how, you know, it's a tough thing, right, to enter into that there's enough of a crapshoot here that there's a percentage of kids who are going to follow the path of your brother. That's exactly right. Right. And so how do you, you know, from a mayor's vantage point, obviously you don't, there's lots of people who run the school district who work beside the mayor, but how do you think about what needs to happen under the next mayor in terms of education in the city? So I, I focus, of course, on, on systems reform, looking at the systems, right, that have served me well, and that is systems that provide jobs, of course, our healthcare system, criminal justice system, housing, education, that provided me with opportunities and, and, and success in failed Andre. Yeah. Boston Public Schools is one of those systems where there are specific examples along the way that I've reflected upon. Um, that frankly, I didn't pay attention to growing up. We were running, running around being our se- you know, individual selves um, and oftentimes frustrated that we were always together. I was like, Andre, go away, right? And I was hanging out with my girlfriends. And so you don't reflect on how this system, particularly Boston Public Schools fails families right. until something happens. And, and that's what, for me, right? Uh, with this question around Andre, really started looking back at the schools I went to. And I went to five Boston Public Schools pre-K all the way through to the 12th grade, including Latin school. All five of my schools were excellent. Mm -hmm. All five had incredible teachers, actually diverse educators. Mm -hmm. All five had good resources, Mm -hmm. um, good partnerships. Uh, Latin school in particular, I started in the seventh grade, provided me with access to jobs, internships, exposure to college campuses, 
When I was at the Timelton Middle School, I was in a double Dutch sports program. Hmm. That, because of those competitions, I was allowed to go to Southern states and visit colleges and for the first time really be taken out of my community and exposed to the larger world. Yeah. Also at the Timelton, I had Girl Scout programming that took me into New Hampshire and New England. So all of these opportunities, these jobs, these resources that I was afforded, Andre was not afforded the same thing. Yeah. And the tragedy is, as we know, many young students today are not afforded the same opportunities. And the mayor's office in particular is absolutely powerful enough to transform this system in partnership, of course, with the school committee, the superintendent, the city council, parents, families, stakeholders. Right. I jumped into the mayor's race in September, challenging our former mayor because I said I was beyond frustrated with the inaction with respect to Boston Public Schools yeah. and ensuring that this system showed up for our families. And let me tell you, it's not a system, right, that just fails communities of color and low-income residents. It fails all of us because it is the luck of the lottery. Yeah. You're lucky if you get a pre-K seat. You're lucky if you get a good high school. You're lucky if you get a high quality elementary or middle school. And now I'm seeing as a mother of two boys, some of these inequities actually get worse and not better. Yeah. And I always share this stat that I live in Mattapan and I have a 5% chance of getting my two boys into a high quality Boston public school. Compared to certain downtown neighborhoods, it's 80%. And, and that's just because around Mattapan, there are no high performing schools. That's right. Or, and, and I always say there are schools in Mattapan that are doing incredible work that we need to celebrate, yep. but they often do not have the resources, the partnerships, the human capital, the things they would need to be able to meet the needs right. of their families and their constituents. And that's the problem. And that's going to require some really courageous work yeah. um, to change that system. Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, one of the things I think about also with schools this year and having been closed for so long that families and students have been put in situations that have created incredible amounts of trauma. And, and trauma is a part of your story as well. Really unbelievable, overwhelming trauma. Both of your parents died when you were young. Your father was in prison. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and about what it's like for kids in this city to grapple with circumstances like that. What should we be doing more so as a city to help those communities, those kids, those families? And, and so could you talk a little bit about that? Because I mean, I feel like you understand it inherently in a way that so many of us cannot. That's right. And you know, the reason I do this work is to break those generational cycles of trauma. Yeah. And I often tell young people in particular that we're not going to change their circumstances overnight. We're not going to eradicate poverty overnight. We can do this, of course, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. So in the immediate, how do we provide young people, young residents, everything they would need to, to succeed in spite of their circumstances? Yeah. And our Boston public schools, our education system is one hub that can do that. You know, when I was at Latin school, folks knew what was happening, of course, at home. They knew about the instability over the years and how they responded was with high expectations, mm -hmm. mental health supports, of course, mm 
um, organizations or even job opportunities that took me out of certain environments, which is critically important, exposed you to something else yeah. so that you remain and I remained hopeful and optimistic about the future. Um, and there is a way in which to make sure that our schools continue to be those hubs. And right now we know that every young person in the city of Boston does not have access to a mental health clinician, a really a good guidance counselor, right. a good social worker. And I mean all of those roles. In some schools that I attended, I had access to all three of those roles. Yeah. Um, great nurses as well, great teachers. And so there is a way to provide these supports and to meet our young people in particular where they are at their schools yeah. and doing it in partnership with our community-based health centers yeah. and, and other community-based organizations. But we have to invest in that. And the city of Boston doesn't necessarily do a great job of investing in this mental health response in addressing trauma as well. Mm -hmm. The resources are, are within the budget. You talk about a $3.7 billion budget, but how do we actually align it and invest in initiatives we know to work? How do we invest in particular as well in community-based organizations and folks on the ground who have also been offering up these supports for years? I had a very, outside of my school system, a very informal community network in my community that also supported me. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about the little local cafes I would go to, the Harriet Tubman house, different places to go and do my homework. Yeah. And who was there? There were elders from the community. There were folks from the community who were there to offer supports. How do we invest in that? How do we scale that up? How do we create more models like that, expand upon these informal structures so that every young person has access to that. Yeah. And at the same time, when you do that, you're also helping the adults and the older folks, I think also deal with their trauma um, and what has come up for them as well. And so there are powerful things happening on the ground. The question is, how does government support it? And I use my personal story, of course, as an example of what's worked, yeah. but there are other examples, of course, data and other initiatives that have proven to have an impact on trauma and these issues. But yeah. Interrupt them. But the broader, I guess that your, your point is really that this, it, it cannot be siloed for certain students that we can't kind of almost predict who's going to go in which direction by routing certain kids a certain way and other kids another way. And that we have to invest in, in all children. And, and the things that you're describing are critical components of giving kids a, an equal playing field, really, really making them that's right. Be that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and it, it involves, of course, also in addition to mental health trauma, all the other systems, right? Economic opportunity, jobs, um, other programming that is important for all of us. And of course, investing and in doing work around the family, yeah, not just the individual child. And that's harder work. Um, but there are also more folks, I think, who are pushing uh, policymakers to really look at the family, yeah, the parents, um, the community, and how we make greater investments uh, in the individuals and in the in the community that surround our young people. In particular, I will say to to also strengthen those bonds as well. Critically important too. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because it, we're at this intersection where we have been dosed with incredible amounts of trauma. And that I think has made this, you know, everyone a bit unstable to, to varying degrees, right? In the city. And we're see, we saw last summer rates of um, violence rise, 
Um, we also, there were nowhere, there was nowhere for kids to go because the summer programming, we were kind of at a loss school had shut down. We, so we're, we're now a little bit more on solid ground and we're coming hopefully out of the pandemic. And so I wonder how you think about just the, the short term, the near term, you know, so what do we do to help stabilize kids and communities through the summer? And, and how do you think about, you know, the things like public safety, which, which involves policing, but of course there's also all of these atrocities that are happening across America. And so how do we, how do we balance out what we need to do to keep each other safe and well? Um, and I guess, where do we spend money to do that? Right. Cause there's a lot, there's plenty of money right now. And, and so how do we invest both in the schools and in our community to, to come out of this with something that looks very different than what we had before? And I think you said it right. It's, it's safe and well. Yeah. And the sad part is that many communities and communities of color are over-policed and underprotected. Yeah. And there are folks really looking at that and saying, that's not just a problem, but how do we balance that, right? right. Um, and the, the one thing I know to be true is that police alone cannot create safety and wellness in connectivity in community, in community. Right. Right. Um, they have a role to play, absolutely. And they need to be supported in responding to 911 calls when folks call around shootings and stabbings and domestic violence, other types of cases. Really important, of course, that when you call, they show up. So there's work to be done there, but there are enough resources, I think, in the department to allow for that coverage that every community would need to feel protected. In Boston, we have a $400 million police budget with a $70 million overtime budget that keeps going up. And so I've been pushing for the department in conversation with officers to really think about how you restructure department so that every neighborhood has adequate coverage Mm -hmm. for that protection, but also do it in a way that is that makes this budget sustainable because it is not sustainable. Um, And most importantly, if we're giving that department $400 million, other departments are not going to have what they need to be able to focus on the wellness piece, right? The other half of your question. And we know that if you want to reduce incidents of violence in a community, you have to invest in the root causes of violence. You have to invest in initiatives that bring people together. You have to invest in moving people out of poverty. You have to invest in programming, particularly for our youth. And not just, not just sort of youth that we deem to be successful. Yeah. All young people, including those who may be participating in doing the violence. Yeah. Um, and there are some programs and some individuals that have a real skill yeah. at reaching those who have picked up a gun or who are doing incidents of violence in community. We have to invest in those folks who have that skill to reach those individuals to say enough is enough. There is hope, there is still purpose for you. How do we get you to where you wanna be and you to be successful and reach your dreams? The city of Boston can't do that by themselves, right? And we have to invest in that though. We also have to invest in jobs, economic opportunity, good housing, access to green space, parks, Um, All the things that I think every resident in the city of Boston who is not only successful, but is thriving in our city, all the things that you have for you and your family. The question is, 
in the communities that do not have these things. And we know they're largely black and brown communities. Right. And that is all because of underinvestment, frankly, over the years. How do we increase investment there and be intentional? And like you said, we have a lot of resources and we have a lot of money pouring into our city from the federal government right now. Yeah. So this is the time to really rethink how we are delivering uh, our, our response to public safety and how we're working on those root causes of violence. And I think if we invest more in the root causes piece and in organizations that are trusted by community, we'll also see the racial disparities in our policing system also begin to go down. Yeah. And that is another piece of the conversation too, because the police continue to show up in, for issues that frankly, they are not the best person to respond to or the best system that should be showing up to respond to mental health concerns, for example, trauma, all the other things um, that I've mentioned. But is that because we're lacking that other system that could really show up to be supportive in terms of mental health or drug abuse or, or whatever? Or it's very limited, Yeah. right? And you think about if someone is going through substance use disorder, homelessness, mental health concerns, right. even some domestic violence cases. I've worked with advocates over the years who've suggested, I don't always think police are the best people to show up first. Yeah. What does it mean to, to bring in some other players and stakeholders? Yeah. Um, but what we need to do as a city is not only invest in it, leverage our own investment to get others to do the same yeah. and call on everyone to play a part. That is obviously the philanthropic community, the business community wants to play a role. Everyone wants to play a role here because I often say, we all want this city to be safe for everyone. Yeah. We want violence to go down and we want every neighborhood to be safe. And for that reason, Everyone, I think, has an interest and a stake in the city's future being equitable for everyone. Every system and opportunity being available to a resident, regardless of their neighborhood, their demographic, if they're a native Bostonian, or if they got here this morning. There is a huge pride that Bostonians feel, and they are easy to rally under good leadership. I think about how quickly the city rallied after the marathon bombing, right. and that we just, it was so swift and effective because of how well led that initiative was. And, and I feel like people really felt like they either could be on the side of helping or they could be on the side of receiving. And that made the community very, very um, robust. And, and, um, and I think it helped us all heal more quickly. That's right. Now we've all, you know, confronted a trauma that is in certain ways equalizing and in other ways shows stark disparities. And, and that's, a, that's a difficult place to, I think, lead in maybe, or maybe it's a wonderful opportunity. And so I- I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Okay. Anything, I'm, I'm excited by the fact that we are, we've been in some dark moments with yeah. COVID. We've lost so many residents to COVID. Of yeah. course, what's happening nationally, the last four years of the, the former president, it's been traumatic for all of us. Yeah. But the, what I'm hopeful is that we have an opportunity to really look at the inequities that exist in our city and to say that we in the city of Boston have the opportunity to engage every stakeholder to eradicate these inequities. Yeah. And that the best thing about our city is that we have everything it would take. We have the human capital, the industry, the philanthropic community, the research, the data, the hired institutions, everything it would take yeah. to close these gaps and when I jumped into the mayor's race, I was, I was excited, not just for my candidacy and the fact that I've lived many of these inequities 
and see my life as an example of breaking these cycles and offering up solutions, but excited about how we as a city could, as you just mentioned, come together and rally around doing this work as a collective and saying we're no longer going to sort of push it to the side or down the road, that this is the time to, to be bold, innovative, to really reflect on what we've learned through the pandemic, to use what we've learned, and then to take it to the next step. And that's, I think, an exciting time for us as a city. And everyone should feel some sense of hope and optimism about the work ahead. I know I do. Yeah. You know, if you think about how you will lead, who will you lead with? Like, what types of people would you bring into the city? What sorts of skill sets does the city need as a set of advisors? to you and to guide certain communities within the city, meaning both like, you know, from the perspective of things like safety and education, as well as the back bay, Mattapan, you know, the Mm -hmm. actual communities. How how do we reassemble um, under a new mayor to, to kind of make a very different, you know, thriving Boston happen? I often say, of course, if I'm blessed to become the next elected mayor of Boston, which of course, you know, I'm working really hard to become. Yeah. One, I think it's critically important you surround yourself with leaders. Yes, the executive and the mayor should be a leader, and I'm definitely that. Folks who are around you who are leaders in their own right, if they're hired to deal with or grapple with a particular issue, that they have a record of accomplishment with that issue. They have an expertise. I often joke that political hires, no. (laughs) If you don't know what you're doing, you should not be in a role. And I really firmly believe in that. Folks who have a record of accomplishment, expertise, who are known in community as well for uh, having that reputation on a particular issue, critically important. People who are data-driven, who hold themselves and their teams accountable to delivering, which I think is critically important. Residents want accountability from their leaders in their departments. Um, They want transparency, right? So leaders who are transparent, And you shouldn't have to sort of mandate that. People who are naturally that way in doing their work. I also think it's critically important to have folks at the table who are collaborative and also who have lived experience. When we're talking about, for example, folks who are dealing with substance use disorder in the opioid crisis, we're seeing, of course, at Mass and Cass, where I grew up, certain downtown neighborhoods that is actually getting worse. And I'm pushing the current administration, everyone to have a greater response on these issues right now. It is sometimes surprising to me that the folks who are living the experience, who have uh, suffered and continue to suffer, say, from substance use disorder, homelessness, that they're not at the table to inform the solutions. And I was really proud, for example, every plan that we've put out, and I put out as a candidate, but the plan to respond to the opioid crisis in particular, that when I was going through or walking through certain neighborhoods in the city, that folks who are living with these quality of life issues, of course, they showed up, but we also had folks who were dealing with substance use disorder in real time. One gentleman yeah. who had the courage to be vulnerable about his struggles, but the desire to want to get well. And yeah, right. how the infrastructure that currently exists in the city and where he was going was setting him up to fail because you had a place where you could go in for recovery and in another place that offered up a different solution that stood in the way of that. So I, I firmly believe if we are talking about issues affecting women or childcare um, or um, 
criminal justice system folks with quarries, people who have been poor, people who have relied on government subsidies or assistance, whatever it is, that we have those folks at the table, not at the end, at the beginning and throughout, to inform how yeah. we in government are responding and to push us to think outside the box. And also, of course, to push us to engage with everyone. We have a robust ecosystem. Yeah. Everything that we do in government should always be connecting with this incredible ecosystem we have and asking everyone to play a role in the issues that we're gonna to have to address as a city. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because really what you're saying is we need to engage with truth. It's, I think it's, it's just an interesting thing to think about that, you know, so many times we create solutions that we think, you know, they're well-intended and we think that they'll work, but they're not necessarily born of the outcomes of someone who actually has experienced the problem. That's right. and, and there's a lot of truth in, in what comes from folks who, who have right. experienced. And I think we'll then have those. a greater impact what we're trying yeah. to solve for. And yeah. I often yeah. will talk to folks around what works to get people out of poverty and what doesn't. What works right. to get folks into a workforce training program so they can you know, expand their skills and, and go to that next career. And if you suggest yeah. going back to community college or college, that usually doesn't work. So how do we create right. other types of programs and initiatives that will have an impact? And that's what I want to do in government. I want to have an impact that people can see, they can feel in their neighborhood. They can see things getting better around them, around them, right? They can, they can look at a business corridor that has very few businesses. And I was just having this conversation with folks in my district around Common Square and Washington Street. They want a diverse yeah. array of businesses, coffee shops, restaurants, sit-down restaurants. They don't have these things right now. Mattapan, no yeah. sit-down restaurants, no liquor licenses, Mattapan. Yeah. Folks want yeah. that. They don't wanna to have to go to Milton or other places. They wanna go right in their community. Um, and so if we wanna have the impact that people can see and feel, then we need to include residents as a part of the solutions. They know the problems, they've felt them, but they also want to participate in the solution making. And I think government can do a better job. And I've been proud to do some of that as a district counselor, but would absolutely continue that type mm. of policymaking and leading uh, sort of the bottom-up approach uh, as mayor. Talk a little bit more about um, economic development, because I think Boston's very blessed to have just a, a wide array of industry, right, which keeps us very balanced. And it also, we have, we have some very powerful companies in, in this town who, you know, continue to grow and are able to create lots of jobs in the city. And we also have thriving small businesses and, and hopefully those, you know, will all come back through this pandemic. How do you think about economic development strategies that both support and encourage big business to be here and thrive, but also help small businesses, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs of color, build the businesses that they want to build here um, and, and that they're truly viable? So on the, the big businesses, the industries that we have, the yeah. big companies, of course, um, and more companies will come here. And I've been, I've been having some really robust conversations with folks in a whole host of industries. I was just recently on a, a Zoom meeting with folks, some life sciences uh, yeah. executives, um, folks who are in tech, biotech, right? I mean, this is what makes Boston so great in terms of our business community. It is robust in many yeah. ways. 
Um, and it's thriving even in the midst of COVID. <laughs> That's how awesome our city is. Yeah. And there was always, the question was, how do you incentivize businesses to come to stay? And someone actually pushed back and said, no, Andrea, I think the question is, and I've heard this in, from a couple of other folks, the framing is, what does Boston have that invites businesses to come here and to be here? Yeah. And it is this incredible ecosystem of research institutions, great lawyers, for example, obviously everything you would need to start a business, to grow a business. Yeah. We, of course, want the city of Boston, and I do, to invest in that ecosystem, which we have to do. Yeah. Housing, transportation, we have to do more there if we want to keep any of these businesses and keep their, their workforce. We yeah. have to invest in our schools, Boston Public Schools, if we want to continue to produce skilled workers for these businesses. We have to keep investing in that ecosystem. But the second piece that I've learned along the way that I'm also really excited about is how do you make the businesses that are here become more part of the fabric of our city mm. and really make them not just through partnerships, but really a part of an ecosystem that in line with government and a vision maybe led by government or set by government where these businesses are also part of closing these inequities, closing the gaps, yeah. uh, meeting the needs, particularly in certain neighborhoods that want some of that robust economic development that they've been desiring for years. And businesses want to play a role. They want to be at the table. They want to be a part of that fabric. And I thought that was so in just enlightening to hear that from some of our business leaders and said, okay, so government, how do we not stand in the way of that? How do we be the convener and consistently create the space and not just at like a breakfast meeting where we're like, hello, let me give you an update on where the city is and then we never see each other again, right? Yeah. Like really yeah. every day in communication because when that happens, a few things can happen. One, the city of Boston itself uses its own $3.7 billion budget to invest in businesses run by women and people of color. And you know, from every report, we are missing the mark on that. I would absolutely change that. But in addition to us doing it through our own budget, we then of course can push other institutions, private sector, our hospitals, our, our higher institutions to also diversify their businesses and mm -hmm. not just diversify their supplier relationships, their businesses, you know, and ask who are your lawyers? Who are your accountants? Who yeah. does of course your laundry and your food and all of that? And how many of those businesses or contracts go to women or people of color? How many go to the neighborhoods that really need the investment to create jobs? Yeah. Um, and so we're going to have to really think outside the box. And I, there's a way to make that happen when the city of Boston does it and leads by example. And to then push other institutions in the, in the business community to do that. And I think once we have that, some of this economic opportunity will then go into our neighborhoods, sort mm -hmm. of move out of the downtown neighborhoods where it tends to just sort of live for the most part um, right. and move into other neighborhoods. And, and of course we will then see diversity in, in, in other ways in terms of diversity of businesses, coffee shops. You know, I often say, I love Dunkin' Donuts, but I would love to see an entrepreneur who lives in Mattapan be able to open a coffee shop or workspace or combination um, and be from the community and be open past four o'clock. Right? Right. We should be able to do that in the city of Boston. We of course want restaurants, all of these things. Um, we can make that happen and, and make sure that every entrepreneur, every 
person who's looking to start a business, grow a business, particularly a small business, that they have access to capital, mentors, entrepreneurial networks. There are all these rich networks that are just out of reach uh, for so many folks in the communities. They need that too to be successful. And this ecosystem, this business community in partnership with the city can provide all of that along with technical assistance on anything and everything they would have to navigate. So you, so you feel like that would be a part of, of your, of the mayor's office is, is that there would be someone, because I, I do feel like the, the, the thing that I, I feel like is complicated because of course, businesses want to lean in and help the city thrive. And yet they're behemoths, right. With, with a bottom line to manage to, and, and, you know, in, in a certain way, communities are disaggregated and therefore, you know, much there's a, there's a balance there that has to, I think that someone has to sit in the middle and, and negotiate that balance. Right? Absolutely. So that they really know how to meet each other on terms that will benefit both. That's right. And it could be a cabinet position, the person yeah. who is sort of navigating all of this yeah. in, in addition to some infrastructure changes. And I'll give you an example, the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. When I was putting together that plan, all of these incredible restaurant owners, from major restaurants and players to, you know, an incredible young lady who is fabulous, who runs a food truck, right? Who is expanding into a a restaurant. And um, they were talking about all the ways in which they want to be helpful to the city of Boston. And one of the things they said, is just so difficult to navigate the city and how hard it is. And so one is how do you have someone own how we're going to show up with this industry work in partnership to not only get them back online, but to help us in the city, create job opportunities, right? Yeah. Help us meet uh, food, uh, deal with food insecurity. Help right. us as a city close some gaps that we want to work on. Someone can own that. But in addition, I, in the plan, we talk about creating a hospitality division in the city. So people know where to go instead of going to 20 different departments, 20 different people. So sometimes it is that human capital position. Sometimes it's that along with a division or an office that is equipped, um, that is clear on what their responsibility is and always in relationship and in communication. And you have to set up this infrastructure around you. It can't be the mayor herself. And I've often seen that, you know, I think everyone called Marty Walsh and I'd be like, Marty, you can't take all those calls. (laughs) It's just not efficient or effective or impactful, right? So how do we set this up around us um, to be able to do the work and remain in communication in real time on how we get to that vision of an integrated, resilient, prosperous, world-class city for everyone, right? That's what we all want. And so I'm excited about that, but you're exactly right. It needs to involve some of this infrastructure and human capital uh, in the city. Yeah, communication is key. Okay, so we're now we're going to make the conversation a little lighter. You are a lifelong resident of Boston. And so we have some Boston questions for you. The first being, (laughs) where is your favorite place to go in the city if you just want to relax? Probably the Neponset Trail, which is right near me in Mattapan. And I walk with the family um, and we end up at the park, a couple of parks in Dorchester. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, do you have a favorite sports team? Oh, this is hard. Um, it's a trick I'd have question. To say, <laughs> I'd have to say the Red Sox. 
advice. And I used to work at Fenway when I was in high school. You did? Um, yeah. So would frequently go to the games. So there's a, there's a connection. Every time I go back to Fenway, it, it just, uh, there's a moment of reflection. What did you do? So I worked at a food stand yeah. and then was promoted <laughs> um, to manage uh, the on-site, on-site um, uh, stand, I guess, for Bob the Chef, which Amazing. is no longer, yeah, which is no longer here. It's now Daryl's, but yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, okay. Do you drink coffee? I do. Where's your favorite place to get a cup of coffee? I do like Dunkin' Donuts, um, but but I also like um, Flat Black, which is right around the corner, and Ripple Cafe. And if anyone actually hasn't been to Ripple, Ripple is incredible, so I would recommend Ripple Cafe. Um, and I say Dunkin' Donuts because <laughs> you'll love this. Um, it's affordable at different moments. So mm -hmm. if in the one day I'm having more than one, I will often say do Ripple and Dunkin'. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Very, yeah. Way to balance. Exactly. Have to watch the budget. All right. This one's particular to me. I'm not sure if anyone else cares about this, but City Hall, the building, right, is an example of brutalist architecture. Mm -hmm. And it is unbelievable. What, tell me what you like about City Hall. It is where you work. <laughs> what I like about City Hall. Yeah, that building is a monstrosity. Um, <laughs> I, I often sit in there and redecorate it. As yeah, well, this, like, yes. like, and there yeah. are certain parts where, you know, you have no windows. At the, yeah. Yeah. It's awful for, for city employees, for sure. Um, I think I like where it's situated. The fact that, you know, even though the building itself is not pretty to look at, when you come out, you know, you have the stairs leading to Faneuil Hall, just yeah. looking that way. You're looking towards, of course, the state house. Um, and just the massive open space around it yeah. is phenomenal. And of course, there's different projects in the pipeline right now um, to transform the space. But I do think that's quite unique. You know, normally you have office buildings um, and right next to it is another office building. Yeah. That expansive space that can allow for all types of outdoor and, and, uh, and activities that connect residents, I think is pretty cool. Yeah, very special. Andrea Campbell, thank you so much for joining me today. And it was exciting to hear about your thoughts on being mayor of the city of Boston. Thank you. And thanks for all you do. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with city councilor Andrea Campbell. If you would like to learn more about Andrea Campbell's campaign, please visit our blog, we hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future of Boston. Have a great day.